What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Je vous aimais. Je vous aimais. Je suis sûr que vous inventez. Vous m'aviez demandé de ne plus vous revoir. Oh, laissez-moi. <rire> Je n'ai jamais été avec vous dans aucune chambre. Je ne voulais pas vous souvenir. Bien, racontez-moi donc la suite de notre histoire. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. I am so excited to be back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jim Vendiola. Bonjour, you two, and merci beaucoup, Mike. It's good to be back. French Month continues with a look at Alain René's last year at Marion Bad, based on a script by Alain Rob Grillet. The film tells the tale of three characters, M, A, and X, as they wander the halls and grounds of a vast hotel in Marion Bad. What are their relationships? What are they doing in Marion Bad? How does this film take apart everything that we think we know about narrative storytelling? We'll discuss all of these things and more as we go along. Again, this is one of those movies where I don't think we can spoil it for you. Likewise, you may have a completely different interpretation of what we discuss. That's cool, bro. Sam, when was the first time you saw last year at Marion Bad, and what did you think? Probably about 10 or so years ago, and it was one of those films that I had heard about as being on that sort of unspoken list of classic films you have to see, but that might hurt your brain. (laughs) So I just instantly fell in love with it. And it was 
One of the films that I think introduced me to kind of French cinema as a whole. So it was kind of my, my gateway drug. How about you, Jim? I saw Marion Bad for the first time at uh, Chicago's Music Box Theater in 2008. And it was with a Jonathan Rosenbaum talkback. I know he's deeply in love with this film, but I don't quite remember what was discussed during that talkback, I think, because I was sort of struggling to process my first viewing of this film. Not adding to my understanding, I I had fallen asleep a couple times because I think it's hypnotic rhythm and organ score almost invites it. And it's almost Pavlovian for me as well, because I'm a former Catholic who is dragged to church every Sunday. So anything with that degree of organ music will just automatically put me to sleep. To say, you know, it's gorgeous is an understatement. To say it's fascinating is equally an understatement, but it's to say it's uh, maddening at times is also an understatement. All that said, I was I was um, sort of doing this more consistent dive into into modernist films at the time that I saw it. Like his his previous film, uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour, another favorite of mine, uh, Bergman's Persona, as well as Bergman's The Silence. So I was kind of consuming all these um, modernist techniques and ideas at the time, but I still felt like it was this was maybe the, the most challenging of the ones I saw around that period in my viewing. I actually watched this for the show. I had never seen it before. It was one. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was one that I had really wanted to see and kind of was waiting for them to show it at the Detroit Film Theater or to have some sort of theatrical experience watching it because I really wanted that feeling of being locked in a room and having to pay full attention to this because I think the more attention you pay, the more you get out of it. But I will say that there are times where I feel like this has been presented to an audience as a puzzle, and I'm not sure if there's a solution. One article I read about this kept talking about people looking for a key, like an answer key to unlock this film. And I don't think that there is a key. And I think if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I know exactly what's going on in this and proceeds to pontificate to you all of the meanings of all of the things, they're probably full of shit. So just be warned if that ever happens. If you're at a cocktail party and someone wants to explain to you last year at Marion Bad, you might want to look the other way and just go up and refresh your drink or something or just slap them it's almost like we are the character of x constantly losing in the the game of nim which is a game that i still just don't understand and i mean i don't think you're supposed to walk away from the movie understanding how to play this game but Having read the rules and understanding the general principle, it just the way that it's the sh- the way it's set up in those shots. It seems like he's just destined to lose. Like there's nothing he could do. Yeah, it almost seems like he X does not understand the rules, so he's just not really playing it strategically. Yeah, he's playing it in almost sort of a reactionary way. Well, I read that if you go first, you're almost destined to lose. It's like tic tac toe. That makes sense, but I, I also read that there are versions of, there's one version of a game where the object is to go last. And then there's another version of the game where the ob- where if you go last, you lose. Who the hell knows? And they're not just playing Nim, right? Aren't they playing dominoes at one point as well? Yeah, and there are cards too. 
I think those all are technically NIM just with different, different objects. That's sort of distinguished by all those objects kind of being arranged in the same triangular fashion. This is one of the movies where we are not going to go through this point by point. We're not going to try to encapsulate the plot for you because are you sure? <laughs> I'm pretty darn sure. I think it's much better if we talk about patterns. You know, we've t- already talked about the game and that there's a game that comes back time and time again. There are snatches of voiceover that come back and even that voiceover seems to get repeated at times as if the movie were starting over. There's also certain shots that we're going to see. We're going to see different motifs throughout this entire thing. And I think it would be better and more fulfilling for us to actually look at some of those things and just talk about that rather than try to say, well, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. I mean, you can go in and watch this movie. The first time I watched this, I did try to just put myself in a state where I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this as if this were a linear film, which is a mistake. But, you know, (laughs) there is... The idea that film is unspooling, or in the old days, it was unspooling, and I am there for a period of time sitting in a theater or sitting in front of a screen, and so I'm undergoing time that way. But then there is the way that time is being broken and splintered in the movie itself, so then... You know, I'm trying to experience one way the first time and then trying to put it together in a more linear fashion the second time. I'm not sure if either one of them was a really gratifying experience, but I'm going to to not necessarily criticize this movie, but I'm going to say it's not the easiest film in the world, and it's not something that I'm going to go back to time and time again, but it was a lot of fun watching it the few times that I have watched it, and maybe I'll watch it. If, if it does come to the Detroit Film Theater, I would go and see it. I will probably revisit this maybe once every 10 years to see how I react to it. You have to understand, I think, when you approach this film, that it's not this sort of lighthearted, linear narrative that I can't imagine anyone thinking, oh, yes, my one of my comfort movies is Marion Bod, and I just throw it on. I just throw it on whenever I'm feeling bad. It's less about telling a story and more about examining issues of desire and memory and identity and... Definitely those are themes throughout Renee's career, although I think he he was a little more accessible most of the time than he is here. But that's definitely, to me, all about Ellen Rob Grier, who wrote the film. And, you know, I, I'm sure we'll talk about him more as we go along. But this whole idea of making you work really hard is true of all of his novels and a lot of his own films as well. It's like he doesn't want he doesn't want you to do, enjoy things. <laughs> he, wants, he wants you to think about the nature of film and storytelling and in a way that I really love, but I understand why sometimes other people might find it punishing or incomprehensible, but it's just so beautiful here. From what I understand, having not read any of his novels, but uh, doing research for the show is he's particularly punishing in areas towards women, which we kind of see here as well, which is kind of a, an interesting color when you think about his his fascination or predisposition with like BDSM and how that might play into things we 
see here as well as, uh, you know, things in the script that, you know, Renee did not want in the film. Yes, Renee as a whole is much kinder to women <laughs> and more more interested in telling nuanced stories about their lives. But Rob Grier, actually, one of my favorite books that he wrote is this novel called Project for a Revolution in New York. It's basically like the most extreme version of ideas presented in Marienbad, where you have characters, there are basically sort of three central characters, who we meet again and again in different ways throughout these buildings in New York, but it's this like full out labyrinthine S&M fantasy where this this main female character is tortured and killed in a variety of ways <laughs> throughout the book. If you think of this as sort of the starting point and that as one of the ending points, you can kind of see how he developed his career. Whereas I'm not somebody who is squeamish about sexual violence in film, but there's something about the way Marion Bod is made that made me appreciate the fact that Renee really kind of held off on showing any kind of explicit scenes of rape that are just implied here. I like, I think it's more powerful that they're just implied. Absolutely. And um, yeah, just reading a description of how uh, Rogrier describes it in the script. Um, it sounds very sexualized, you know, the, the yes. way that X pins A's hands back and gags her with lingerie certainly sounds in the realm of, um, you know, his, his novels. More than a lot of other collaborations between a director with a strong vision and a writer, this really feels like two people kind of meeting halfway. And I don't think of Rob Grier as somebody who was very collaborationist. He, as a writer and as a filmmaker, seemed, although he definitely did collaborate with people, but he seemed very concerned with this idea of exploring his own fantasies which you have all of these sort of male protagonists in in his works who follow these very non-linear narratives. A lot of his stories are about this idea of exploring your own fantasies and what that means and how it relates to things like memory and reality and things you've actually experienced. Whereas, So they seem to be very kind of self-focused or self-centered and I don't say that in a negative way. It's just sort of what it is, what it is. Whereas Renee, I think if you look at, at things like Hiroshima Mon Amour and Muriel and a lot of his other early work, he seems to be interested in exploring those same themes, but as apply, applied to groups of people or at least multiple characters. He has this really fascinating way of showing the discrepancies between people's memories and experiences and how people kind of mentally process things. So I just think it's so fascinating to have those two very different approaches to similar themes here in one film. Renee is the obviously more humanistic of the two. <laughs> yes. um, and I also think, uh, you know, when he's not 
collaborating with Rob Grier, like, you know, you, you mentioned his earlier work and the work beyond that, like Muriel, he, he definitely wears his politics on his sleeve. And, you know, I, I know that was something that, uh, Rob Grier fought him on and, you know, wanted <laughs> to make, wanted to make this film very, very apolitical. It kind of stands out in, uh, Renee's oeuvre because of that. You know, it's sort of this weird little island. So many of those left bank figures like Rene and Rob Grier as well, and Marguerite Dura, who worked with Rene, they were all pretty political. Like Rob Grier very publicly was, you know, against the Algerian war. And it just, he's, I think, sort of, I don't want to say a rare example, but an example of the sort of left bank figure who didn't really want to include his politics in his work. Whereas I think Dura and Rene, it was sort of foundational to who they were as artists. This work is so open-ended at times that I've actually seen people say that the A for the Delphine Cedric character stands for Algeria. Yeah, so th- you can read this movie in a lot of different ways, but yeah, it's kind of nutty how many ways there are. I mean, I was reading one <laughs> review that was just saying, well, this person says this, this, and this person says this, this, and it's, it's an interesting work of art in that you can take so many things to it and read so many things into it. But at the same time, it also becomes then kind of frustrating because, like I said, you can meet people that will say, oh, well, it's it's obviously about this. I mean, obviously, all of the characters in this movie are ghosts who are inhabiting this hotel. And this is very much the inspiration for The Shining. I mean, look at the way that the camera moves into this room, and it's very much like the gold room and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, sure, I'll buy it. That's fine. But you might also say that... These characters that, uh, you know, the woman is a psychiatric patient and that X is her doctor and bringing her to this sanitarium where everyone is putting on an act and trying to get her to remember these horrible things that have happened to her in the past. Who knows? You know, this is what I like about this movie is that you can read so many things into it. They've sort of succeeded in their intentions in that regard decades later, right? Because, uh, you know, upon its release, they explicitly invited the viewer to, you know, assign their own meaning to it. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost this meta manifestation of the narrative, narrative in, in quotes there of, you know, the actual film. If you're somebody who needs to find a set particular meaning in a film, then none of the left bank filmmakers are for you at all. And I mean, I would, I would definitely include Chris Marker in that draw Jacques Rivette, who is like sort of a sort of a left bank figure, at least to me, he makes a similar type of film. I, I think the purpose of all of their films as a group is all about questioning narrative and meaning. I get that it's an instinct people have. These films can be really frustrating, especially this one. And I appreciate that people attempt to engage with it and try to understand it. But it just, I find it so frustrating. But on on sort of a similar note to the point you made about when the film came out, they invited people to derive their own meaning. I love that in press interviews, they frequently contradicted each other, which 
they do have pretty contradictory personalities and both very, very strong personalities. But I have to think that that was some sort of intentional ploy, which is just delightful. Oh, it sounds it sounds like it's like the highest form of trolling they could have done at the time, right? It's like their own version of Nim. And disagreeing upon when when events happened and where and, you know, that kind of thing. Rene was discovered the Surrealists when he was just a teenager and for his entire life was really, really influenced by Andre Breton. And it seems like something Breton would do, which is to intentionally give you contradictory answers about his work or surrealism as a whole. And Dali was the same way. That approach to responding to media and journalists is something that's influenced a lot of filmmakers. Like David Lynch does the same thing. But I just, I love that. It's like, this is not easy. You can't just sit here for 90 minutes and walk away. Like, it's going to frustrate you on purpose. Yeah, I kept thinking of uh, the Andalusian dog while I was watching this, especially the title cards, you know, last spring, the next fall, you know, all of these things (laughs) are just like, okay, try to put these things in some sort of chronological order. Doesn't matter. Maybe. Who knows? And this whole talk of, well, last year we talked about this, you know, the back of the video box description of this movie is a man and woman meet at a hotel and the man tries to convince her that they had made plans the year previously and she doesn't remember it. You can walk away with that if you want, but uh, yeah, there's a little bit more to the story. Some people can read War and Peace and come away thinking it's a simple adventure story. Others can read the ingredients on a chewing gum wrapper and unlock the secrets of the universe. That's what I had read coming into this movie and I was like, I don't think that you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes and articles and chapters and all of these things just about a guy who's trying to remind a woman that they had met at a hotel the year before. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Maybe just a little. (laughs) Which is funny because those are really the only things I think most people can agree on. But even those details are like very questionable once you start fucking diving into this thing. Yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm just like, okay, it feels like he's gaslighting her. They never met before. Or maybe he met yeah. someone that looks like her. I don't even think that they're in Marion Bad sometimes. Sometimes the dialogue will be like, well, you know, maybe we met at Marion Bad. And it's like, I thought you were in Marion Bad. <laughs> well, and that's another one of the amazing, I don't want to call it jokes, but for lack of a better word, one of the one of the great jokes about this film is... It's shot in all these beautiful palaces around Munich, but it's it's not shot in Marienbad at all. No. <laughs> if you've got a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Marienbad doesn't even <laughs> exist at the time that this movie is made. It hadn't existed for 20 years, at least. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 I think you have to be a sort of perverse kind of person to really <laughs> to really love this film because it just attempts to fuck with the viewer on so many levels. I love it for that reason. I love the whole idea of a person turning and they do the Hollywood match cut edit of the person turning and they're in one location to begin with and then they turn and they're in a whole different location. I love those kind of things. I love the idea of the characters 
almost always facing different directions and somebody at so many times looking off screen. It's like you don't do that. But here we have all these characters that are always looking at something that we're not seeing. And then they will trick you every once in a while. The character, I, I, I remember one particular time where A is looking and then it is the character who could be her husband, the M character coming towards her. And it's like, Okay, uh, that was surprising. And I'm surprised by what is normal film language at that point. I'm 40 some minutes into this movie and they finally used a convention that I'm familiar with, but it surprises me at that point because every other time they are breaking convention, they are doing all of this play with you hear voices, you think they're coming out of one character's mouth, but no. It's not them. It's actually somebody down the hall. And then maybe we'll join up with them. I love all of these tricks that they're playing on us. They draw upon so many different influences to kind of generate their bag of tricks. I think um, one interpretation ties their sort of like side eye or their off screen glares to uh, like Piero Dea Francesca, um, a Renaissance painter, as well as uh uh, another Nicolas Poussin, another French Baroque painter, and which is which is funny, right? Because the the character of X was this intentional casting of of an Italian man who would speak French in an Italian accent, and then we also have this other fusion of like these two very specific French and Italian painters that he's mimicking in the staging and the blocking of the the film. Which is one of the things that I love because some of the criticism Rene got at the time was that this film is sort of too formal and stylized and it has all these anachronistic elements and it's, it's too old fashioned, like in terms of the setting and the costumes and those sorts of visual references. It's almost like some of that criticism seems to be saying, okay, because this is set in the past, and because these characters are ostensibly wealthy people, that this can't be revolutionary. And it's like, okay. <laughs> Did we watch the same film? <laughs> well, yeah, when I think that, what, uh, 400 Blows was 59, and Breathless was 60, and it's just like, oh, all right, this is right there as the new wave is starting, but this is playing with things way more than I would see early Godar. I mean, yeah, sure, there's jump cuts and Breathless, but I mean, this is like Godar 68, 69 kind of stuff that we're doing here, and it is way more revolutionary to me. Yeah, it certainly reminds me more of like a persona from 66 where, you know, the, the film literally burns up before our eyes and it sort of draws attention to the filmmaking in a very like specific kind of way. I love that Bergman comparison. Bergman was someone who often reminded the audience that the filmmaker cannot necessarily be trusted to tell a logical story or to tell a straightforward story. And I think he wanted you to question the sort of godlike Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Power of the auteur. And Renee does the same thing, especially in a lot of his early films, where he tells you a story or presents you with something like a historical event, like in Hiroshima Mon Amour or in uh, Night and Fog, but in a kind of subtle way, also makes you question the, just the medium of filmmaking itself, which I, it's almost like I, I don't like I know his influences, but he seems to just have kind of come out of nowhere in a certain sense. It's amazing. I like that he's, even from the very first frames of the film, he is already fucking with us. The use of the music that we hear at the beginning, it's the same music that we're going to hear at the end, as if this movie just repeats. And it feels very much like the credits we're seeing at the beginning are the end credits, you know, even though they didn't necessarily have end credits at this point. But just that the way that he uses music in this and that it has all the swelling violins and all of this stuff, and then it turns into the organ that we get throughout so much of this film, and that we even get shots of people playing string instruments, but then we're hearing the organ, and it's just this overpowering. I mean, Jimmy mentioned the the whole idea. It sounds like this, you know, you're in this incredible gothic church and just all of this organ music blasting at you. I love the way that he uses this music. But yeah, just right from the opening credits, it's already like, hey, what you're about to see is not your run-of-the-mill movie. It's like its own brand of cognitive dissonance right like especially when you see the organ music or you hear the organ music playing over the shots of the violinists like your your brain just doesn't it, it doesn't compute which is interesting uh because that was also uh coincidentally delphine sayrig's brother that composed the music which from what i understand it was kind of a last minute choice right I think he wanted, uh, I don't remember who the popular composer that yeah. Renee wanted, but uh, Francis Seyrig was a student of that composer, and he kind of ended up with him. But it's so perfect. I mean, it also, there, it's, it's very hard for me to hear without thinking that we're in a horror movie, which you made the point earlier that some people have interpreted this as a ghost story where everyone is is dead kind of haunting this palace. And there are so many things going on with the cinematography that make it feel pretty gothic or expressionistic at times. It's so ominous, but in a weird way, like, yes, totally agree with the cognitive dissonance point, but it also weirdly complements the really ornate, beautiful set. So much formalism going on. I mean, the way that the voiceover at the beginning 
says a few times, I think he repeats it at least twice just in the opening narration, he calls it a Baroque and Dismal Hotel. And this is one of the most Baroque places you're going to see. Just the filigree around the walls. I love the way that Rene shows this, the ceilings, the vaulted ceilings, and just everything is done up. And God, the, the frames on the mirrors are just incredible. Uh, and that they use these mirrors so often and that you'll get reflections of reflections. You'll get two shots where you have one character in the foreground and one in the mirror. You'll have people's faces split by mirrors. I just love the way that he's doing that again, fucking with us and making us question, are we looking at a person or are we looking at their reflection? And does it really matter? Yeah, we should talk for a second about Sasha Fierney, who I think is one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. He worked regularly with Rene for, I want to say like 20 or 30 years. They had a, a great partnership together. And then he went on to work with Peter Greenaway. And I think his work in general is very concerned with this idea of this sort of ornate beauty where there are lots of repetitions of things and things are very symmetrical or doubled or mirrored. His work is so distinctive that Again, I think it's this example of Rene being somebody who genuinely liked collaborating with people and didn't want to, he didn't want to be Godard and have full control over everything. And Vierney made such an impact on his career, like in the best way possible. I love that they are drawing attention to so many of these things that could be seen as mistakes. We've talked about Orson Welles' Othello on here before, and one of the things that Welles always talks about is, oh yeah, there was a character who opened up a door, and they were in Spain, and then they stepped through the door, and they're in Italy. And he's hiding that with you know this great edit and just the power of film and the way that he shoots things. And in here... You've got a character walking down a hallway, and then they'll cut, and they're walking down a different hallway. And I love love that. And I love that they're drawing attention to all of these things that could be seen as, quote-unquote, mistakes. But in this world, it's perfect. Yeah, again, it's kind of just like this this modernist cinematic invention um, where they were sort of like seemingly drawing attention to the filmmaking itself. Um, right. And then it's the kind of thing that sort of trickles down. And then uh, someone like Wes Anderson makes direct reference to it in like a bottle rocket or a Rushmore where you kind of see Owen and Luke Wilson having these conversations. And then like, you know, they're continuing a conversation while they're jumping a fence in a completely different part of, uh, you know, <laughs> their environment. And then, you know, we also kind of have these more subtle examples of it where I I kind of, you know, I'm I'm struggling to think of one, but we have these other, you know, sort of seamless edits where people are conversing and then magically move from one location to another. I don't think you have Grand Budapest Hotel without having last year at Marion Pad. No. Yeah, Um, yeah, completely. Or even uh, Darjeeling, the way they move through those, uh, you know, train cars. It's so fascinating to me because I think it sort of does two things at once, which is that whole idea of dissonance that you're talking about earlier, where it's constantly reminding you that even though this world is so absorbing and you're 
really struggling to figure out what's going on, it constantly is forcing you not to get lost in it and to point out the sort of mechanisms of filmmaking. But it also has this great surrealist quality that's almost kind of like magical realism, where it's like the Harry Potter school, where a staircase will get bored of being where it is and just decide to move somewhere else. And it's so (laughs) so jarring, but it's just so perfectly done here. Oh, yeah. It's like the, the map of the garden that constantly moves around this hotel, right? And or, or their discussion about where the mirror was placed in her room. I did make a comparison to The Shining earlier, and it's not necessarily the shots of Danny going down the hallway, which is very similar to what we get with some of these shots of these hallways. It's more that moving picture and it's also that picture always reminds me of the maze that we see and it feels like you could get lost inside of this hotel very easily it's not a maze outside necessarily it's the maze is in the hotel itself it has that same quality of the overlook where the inner space doesn't make sense but in a perfect way you know that this is kind of a horror movie kind of playing with memory where was i last time where did this move to and it is wonderful that way. And Sam, you brought up the cinematography. I mean, this has some images that I have seen these images out of context so many times, especially the image of the ground where you have the people standing, those wonderful triangular or pyramidal uh, shapes of the uh, bushes, and then the people standing there with the painted uh, shadows. That is one of those indelible images that just defines this film for me. Some of the images are so beautiful that it almost distracts you. And I'm sure this is intentional, but distracts you from the fact that the narrative itself is so kind of swirling and repetitive and disorienting. It's 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 like it's hard for your brain to kind of focus on the film in the way you would focus on like a typical linear narrative film. They're just you're being pulled in so many different directions between the music and those incredible shots and the sets that they chose. So many of these images I think could just be turned into stills and kind of left at that. And actually we should talk for a minute about the Cineroman, which is this idea of a novel that is also a film. And that's something that Rob Grier was really interested in. I, I can't remember if I said this earlier, but he's part of this movement in the 40s, 50s, and 60s called the Nouvelle Roman, which Marguerite Dura was also involved in. And it was basically the literary equivalent of Marienbad in the sense that you have all of these writers who are attempting to kind of break apart literary form and play with it and question what it is and how it works. And so you have a lot of examples of novels where characters either are not given names or like in the case of Hiroshima Mon Amour, they're just called he or she, or they have just an initial for a first name. But In terms of the way that he kind of moved from writing novels to making films, he also did these things called the cinema roman, which is sort of like the cinema novel or film novel. 
And so he would take these kinds of stills or storyboard images, or uh, later on, he worked with painting. And to tr- and and I think like when you watch this film and you see how important some of these still shots are, to me it feels like that's something he's already doing in his head, and that Renee was able to pick up on and bring to life on screen in a way that I think is just so fascinating. I heard a anecdote about how the script supervisor had to uh, create this really ornate graph of characters and locations because of how often we jump with both of them and how it it resembled something like like Egyptian hieroglyphs. (laughs) I looked high and low for that because I know they reproduced it in Caillou du Cinema, but I could not locate that. When I was reading about that, it so reminded me of after a movie like Primer came out where people would graph out all of the different time periods in Primer. And I kept thinking, God, if Marion Bad had been released in 2019, imagine just like YouTube would explode because so many people would have their different hot takes on what the movie is and try to explain it away. It'd be worse than, I mean, thank God Mulholland Drive came out in 2001 before YouTube was even around. I think it was 2001. But anyway, um, just thank God that we didn't have YouTube then. And thank God we didn't have YouTube for Marion Bad because it would just be a whole lot of horse shit going on. Sometimes cinema wears down a rut and falls in it, telling the same six stories over and over again. And that's when it's about time to shake things up. These are our top ten favorite rule-breaking films of all time. The first time I watched Days last year at Mario and Bob. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Kicking us off at number 10, let's talk about how there are film rules in the first place. It's not like there's a stern film teacher sending directors to the cinematic principal's office for talking about turn or film police arresting offending filmmakers and citing illegal service shooting features for the lifetime. We're talking about the kinds of silent contracts between filmmakers and watchers. Uh, maybe you can't read off like your commandments, but you damn well know when they've been broken. And back in the golden age of Hollywood, where the president for much of film was set, something we now call classic Hollywood cinema style emerged. It's unconventional editing, potentially up to the normal continuity of time and location, of discussions about what the movie is. Between the amount of videos I was doing, I didn't purposely take a break, but as a lot of you know, I started my new job last week, and I wanted to devote all my time to that. But it's like that excruciating documentary about The Shining where you have these people giving these insane interpretations. And like, to me, The Shining is a pretty straightforward story. Like, yes, it has some 
kind of maybe more surreal moments and deals with the supernatural. But like, to me, The Shining is a straightforward narrative in a way that Marion Bob certainly is not. So yes, if it came out now and people were trapped in their houses <laughs> with cameras on their phones, I'm sure we would have a similar documentary. Uh, was it Room Room 27? Yep. Yes. A friend of mine once described that movie as a documentary about people who have too much time on their hands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's more it's more an indictment of uh people who freely associate things without meaning and try and assign meaning to it, you know, it's like the uh correlation equals causation crowd to a T. It's it, it's something totally. I saw in the theater and I was like, whoa, this is like fucking bonkers. And then I literally saw it again two days later, I think my brother wanted to see it. So I went with him and then I was like fully just like I was on board initially. And then this upon second viewing, I was like, this is complete bullshit. Renee invites us to talk about things that we haven't talked about, things like Hitchcock. And he puts Hitchcock in the movie. So we should probably be sitting here going, well, look at this and look at how this works in Vertigo. And, you know, maybe uh, X is like Scotty and he's trying to remake A the way that Scotty remade Judy into Madland and, you know, uh, the whole idea of the one from the past and yada, yada, yada. But it's like, okay, yeah, we, th- th- there you go. There's your YouTube video. Go on, go make that. <laughs> Which I think Renee did that in Muriel as well. Uh, yeah. Hitchcock has a cardboard cutout cameo. And I'd, I'd be more interested in, in our conspiracy, conspiracy theory, uh, about how that relates to the, the ghost in Three Men and a Baby, to be honest. <laughs> you, you, well, you know, you know, there would be some crazy person who was like, okay. Actually, Hitchcock made this film, and Renee is just a cover, and here's how he lets you know. You know, people are fucking crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But I I mean, to your point earlier, I've also heard those interpretations about how this is secretly a super political film that's all about the Algerian War, and I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I mean, there there are so many films that come in the wake of World War One and World War Two that address this idea of collective trauma. And I think you could talk about Marion Bod in that sense. But to say this is actually about how horrible the Algerian war is. And let me tell you all of the secret signs. It's just like, what? <laughs> I was waiting for a numerological interpretation because I kept thinking, okay, well, A's got three points. M has five points yeah, and X has four <laughs> points. So, you know, we've got three, four and five. So now let's go through and start to interpret things. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. You could talk about the triangular structure. So I think in the very beginning, we were talking about how Nim is set up that way. And you see that, I mean, you have obviously the three main characters, but you do see those kinds of weird triangles and groupings of three pop up a lot throughout the film, not to, you know, take us down this path of conspiracy insanity, but... (laughs) But I do think there are a lot of triangles and threes. Well, there was even talk of Sasha Pitov's face being like a triangle. Yeah. I saw that, <laughs> an, an inverted triangle. <laughs> Sasha Pitov being compared to an upside-down triangle is uh, more interesting than uh, a couple of the other 
uh, Marion bad attempts I've, I've heard where they just compare him to a creepy Hugh Laurie. Oh, that makes me sad. I mean, I've also seen some people compare him to a sort of Nosferatu-like figure. And while I do think there are a lot of kind of subtle horror movie references, you know, we've already talked about this. It just frustrates me so much because I feel like people pick up on these references or pick up on these kinds of visual cues, and then they just run with it. They they can't let there be room for lots of different kinds of genre references or even artistic references. It's It just has to be one thing. That's not this film. It is bizarre. It's also, uh, what was it? I, I think um, someone on Twitter was calling it a recency bias, where oh people my God. Who, who, <laughs> fail, who fail to do legitimate research um, will just assign things that they know from their more narrow pool of having not, you know, watched as many films, which kind of sounds like really snobby and assholish. But, you know, when you sort of when you sort of break it down, though, I mean, it kind of accounts for how many people, uh, you know, talk about how Joker is the best movie they've ever seen. That's <laughs> sort of that's that's kind of how I went down this rabbit hole of recency biases because someone was defending their statement and people are like, have you have you seen films that are uh, you know older than like thirty seconds ago? A puddle can look really deep until you see the ocean. To move back to the um, the tripling, I, I I picked up on that as well. I think you know there there are a lot of triangles um, that are literal triangles, um, like you mentioned the the Nim game and the shrubs and just the um, the triple reflection we see uh, A in at one point and that kind of thing. I read one article that I liked a lot, which was cut out the third character, cut out M quite a bit, and it was mostly dealing with A and X. It was trying to say that we were seeing things multiple times, multiple ways, because we were seeing them through A's POV and then through X's POV. I kind of like that, and I like it just mostly in the scene at the bar when they're doing that kind of cross-cutting, and it's that thing that Dennis Hopper would pick up on years later where you're kind of flash forwarding and eventually that one piece of time goes away and it becomes another piece of time. And then that that also moves into her being startled and backing up and breaking the glass. That whole sequence I found very interesting because it does almost feel like he X is projecting into a what he remembers. And that is right around that rape scene. I believe that whole idea of him coming in and we don't necessarily see anything in the final film, but I, it almost makes it worse somehow because we don't see it. And we just imply that there might have been a rape or we could just consider, Oh, they had sex, but from her reaction, it doesn't feel like they had sex. Maybe it was really bad sex. I'm kidding. I shouldn't I shouldn't make that joke. <laughs> like pizza. Oh uh, yeah, I'm sorry I made that joke. But no, I I totally agree that because he refuses to show us an actual assault, it lets your imagination run wild and makes it worse. But I think you mentioned this earlier when you brought up this issue of gaslighting. My favorite things about the film is the way in which it sort of questions 
the validity of our memories and how easily they're manipulated. And Hiroshima Mon Amour does the same thing where it kind of has a relationship between this couple. For anyone who hasn't seen it, basically it's this post-World War II film about this French actress who was in love with a German soldier and they were going to run away together, but before they could, he dies. And she's terrorized by her village because after the war in France, even though pretty much everyone collaborated in some form, she's sort of turned into a scapegoat and imprisoned in a cellar and has her head shaved. And so she has these very traumatic memories of her lover dying and, and have her going through that. And so she goes to Japan as an actress, as part of a theater troupe, to do this performance about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and has this kind of brief romantic encounter with a Japanese man who was a soldier during the war. Like Marion Bod, you have to watch the movie it's probably several times to come, <laughs> come away with that full plot. But it's the same sort of thing where they have all of these conversations where she says, you know, I was here, I remember. And she clearly was not there when the atomic bomb was dropped. And he says, no, you weren't. It's like memory becomes this substance like like clay or paint or something that you can change over time and you can sort of mold it into this thing that it wasn't to begin with. But I think he sort of suggests, at least in Hiroshima, that even if your memory is no longer an accurate depiction of events that you experienced, there's some sort of emotional truth, and that it can help you process things like romantic love or pain. But I don't know that that's here, it feels kind of crueler. The relationship in Hiroshima Monomore uh, is almost inarguably consensual. Yes, uh, and you. I'm very do... passionate. Yes, it's uh, it's it's super romantic the way that they play with memory, and that's one of the things I I love about the film is because it sort of plays with this idea of how nostalgia works and how we can't help but romanticize things, and how tragedy kind of uh, bolsters that nostalgia in some strange contradictory way and yeah here we kind of have this heteronormative he said she said kind of thing uh especially if you read it through the lens of the film being about processing the trauma of an assault and like you said it is it is crueler in that way which i have to give uh full responsibility to that to rob grier <laughs> and not to renee <laughs> Well, it's crazy, too, because I, I read this interpretation about how because Rob, Rob Grier is so predisposed for things of a BDSM slant that he proposed it as this triangle in which X remembers something that actually happened, but M is almost this puppet master who, with his wife A, orchestrated this sort of cuckold fantasy, and now they're sort of in the denial phase of it where they're playing coy and acting like they don't know what he's talking about, even though they were basically in on this deception. But that seems far too consensual for, you know, what we know about Rob Grier and what you've sort of said earlier in this recording. 
Rob Gray is one of those people who's so difficult to talk about in a way where I won't get myself into trouble or enrage someone. And I mean, obviously, I think his films are lots of trigger warnings. It's okay, Sam. Nobody listens to this podcast anyway. Okay, good. And plus, I've... With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I think I, it's been well established that I've already been canceled. So it's like I can't be canceled any further than I am now. But I genuinely love Rob Grier and a lot of his novels and his, his films in particular. And I do think what makes them so interesting is that they're just this kind of unchecked exploration of fantasy in things like The Man Who Lies, which he made a couple years after this. He does look at ideas of consent and the way that two people in a couple contribute to a fantasy or shape a fantasy. So I feel like I just have to defend him for a minute because one of his greatest collaborators was his wife, Catherine, who was involved deeply, still is involved, I believe she's still alive, really involved in this sort of underground BDSM scene in in France, but wrote novels of her own accord and was in a lot of his films. It's not quite as simple as the way I phrased it earlier, where it's here's this guy who just wants to explore his rape fantasies. It comes across that way here, maybe because he was earlier in his career and was still kind of trying to develop things, if that makes sense. In terms of uh, the defense, it's it's valid. And, you know, there's just having not read any of his novels, I think I think it makes sense that there's... Uh, you know, clearly nuance to it. It's just kind of the the stuff that pops up when you research is sort of like um romance sentimental, which I don't know if uh, <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> that one uh, sounds like you know pretty pretty much that, the opposite yes. of of other other works. Yeah, that one is not where I would recommend anyone starts. Apparently it was like a career ender, is what I read. I don't know if that's just hyperbolic or not. It's a little bit hyperbolic. I mean, I feel like it's along the lines of Peeping Tom, where it came out late in his career when his career was already sort of winding down. It is very sadomasochist, like it's very extreme. And the book that I mentioned earlier, uh, Projects for a Revolution in New York, is also pretty extreme, as is something like his film Playing with Fire, which... Anything he made with Jean-Louis Trintignant, it maybe because of Trintignant's presence, it tends to have a little bit more whimsy or like 
dark humor in it. And so it doesn't feel quite like there are warmer moments. It doesn't feel quite as grim as Marion Bod kind of does. But yes, he does have some pretty extreme sexual violence in his later work, even if it's just implied. I think either way, I, I'm, I'm grateful that that stuff is tempered by, you know, Rene's humanism oh, same. and the fact that he, he chose to sort of take it in a different direction. I think it's definitely like critical to our enjoying this movie today still. I like those later films of Rob Gray's a lot, but if that element was allowed to flourish in Marion Bot, it would be a very different film. And I think it would be a different film to the existing film's detriment. I'm glad you guys are saying this because I had felt like I was really reaching when I was thinking about all the times when the actors are in Tableau in Marion Bad and thinking of some of the shots in Venus and Furs where Oh yeah. Yeah, where one of our characters comes in and all the characters all the other characters are in Tableau and they're just waiting and then finally the party begins. It felt very much like a lot of those opening scenes of Marion Bad. One of my favorite things about this film is the way that they play with a lot of the actors feeling like models or mannequins and those great scenes where one person is talking or two people are talking, but everyone else is still and silent in this really creepy, unnatural way. Or I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the scenes where you expect to hear certain sounds, either music or dialogue, and then something else entirely comes out. I know Rene was, much like Jacques Rivette, was really, really interested in theater and considered theater sort of a vital part of his films. I mean, you know, we mentioned Hiroshima Monomore earlier, and the main character is an actress. To him, much like with Rivette, he he didn't have this sort of hard line in his head of, okay, cinema and cinema acting should go on one side and anything theatrical or for the theater should go on the other side. And I think part of what makes Marienbad so interesting is that sort of artificial sense of theatricality that are in a lot of the scenes that are just so gorgeous just another, uh, I think, way in which there's overlap with Bergman, who himself came from, you know, a, a theater background and often features, uh, you know, plays within his films. I love the play that's in this one. When we see the two actors up there who could be stand-ins for A and X, I'm not saying that that's too much of a stretch. I'm not coming up with anything groundbreaking. I love how limited they are in their movement and that the woman turns at one point and that's the only thing she does. And then the the curtain falls, the curtain opens, they're still standing exactly the same place. The curtain falls again, curtain opens up again. They're still standing exactly the same place. No bows, nothing. They are still in that exact same mannequin pose that the play ended with. And I think that Sam, we, talked about Rivette earlier in this year and how important the the play in uh, La Morfou was, I definitely see there being a, a big meaning to this, and especially that all of the people at Marienbad seem to have turned out for this play. It seems like it's really such a hit for uh, what's going on here at the resort. It's weird, too, because they, they don't move. Those two performers don't move until the chimes occur. 
which is a thing that occurs at the end of the film uh, when uh, when X and A are leaving the hotel together. So, yeah, what that means, I don't know. You know, I mentioned how the voiceover, it, it comes in a second time and gives us the exact same thing we heard at the beginning of the film. It reminds me a lot of the end of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, where, or the beginning of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, where we see the end of the film, and then we see that same thing happen again later on, and we have the 20th Century Fox fanfare starting up as if we are watching the beginning and the end at the same time. So there's a lot of times where I feel like Marion Bot is starting over again, or where you get those knocks in um, Celine and Julie go boating. And it's like, are they the ones that are knocking on the door, even though we see them inside of the quote unquote haunted house, just that idea of the repetition um, is really fascinating to me because yeah, you have those chimes and usually I thought those chimes usually meant it's time to go back into the theater because intermission is just about up which is weird because you get it like at the at, at the conclusion of the performance it seems like throughout a lot of his work rob gray was really into this idea of labyrinth structure and how deep can you actually go into the labyrinth in a narrative and still have it function in some way and it's one of the things that i find so interesting about his work and this film in general but i also think if anyone from the CIA is listening, you don't need to waterboard people anymore. You just need to give them acid and put this film on a, on a loop. They'll be insane within, within 48 hours. <laughs> They'll be lost wandering the halls of Marion Bad. <laughs> I'm not that good on my Greek and Roman mythology, and I kept thinking, I, I keep mixing it up with the Bible, and I remember Lot's wife turning back and turning to a pillar of salt. Isn't there a very similar story of someone rescuing someone from the underground and then they also either turn into a pillar of salt or they turn back and then they're lost forever kind of thing when it that is one of the interpretations regarding the the statue statuary in this film for sure it's the orpheus and eurydice myth yeah and so it was it was essentially one is following the other out of the underworld and i think orpheus was told to not turn and face eurydice until they were out of the underworld and he does it prematurely and she becomes banished and it's you know she's two two ill-fated lovers exactly yeah because you have the whole idea of the the hotel like i said itself being that labyrinth you know sammy talked about how much he loved labyrinthine plots and pushing that envelope. I mean, this whole thing just feels like it's, uh, you know, like if you were uh, Theseus, there's no way you could follow the string of this. To be fair, Theseus couldn't get out of the labyrinth himself. He needed Medea's help. <laughs> so, and then betrayed her, that bastard. I've definitely read people talking about that allusion to Orpheus and Eurydice, but to me, that story always felt like it was very romantic about tragic love and Orpheus turns around because he just wants her back so badly. He just like needs to make sure she's behind him. And here I don't get that same sense of profound romantic attachment from the characters. So it's hard for me to say like, Oh yes, that makes sense to me. I just, I feel like that one's reaching a little bit. 
if you could liken it to anything, it's more of like a Pepe Le Pew cartoon where <laughs> he's he's trying to like embrace her and she's just like, you know, fighting tooth and nail. It is very much like that. <laughs> the only time I remember A smiling at all, I don't think is even a real moment when we have the camera camera rushing into that room and her opening up her arms and those successive takes of her opening her arms and smiling and being almost ecstatic. I don't even think that's real. No, it seems like one of those kind of fantasy sequences. It also has always struck me as weird that Renee wanted her to be modeled after Louise Brooks and Pandora's Box. Pandora's Box is based on a play by this guy, Frank Vatikind, who I'm sort of obsessed with, and I never get to talk about him, so you're just going to have to bear with me for a second. The floor is yours. It's this two-part play he did called Earth Spirit and Pandora's Box. And it's about this character named Lulu, who is more or less like she winds up becoming kind of a femme fatale character and is responsible for a number of people's deaths, whether murder or suicide, before herself being killed, consensually murdered, for for lack of a better expression, by Jack the Ripper in what is, I think, the first pop culture reference to Jack the Ripper ever made. And the beginning of her story, though, it's all about men, different men in her life, shaping her to sort of be what they want her to be. And there are a lot of scenes where people will sort of tell her who she is or what she likes. And I I'm wondering if there's kind if, if that's a conscious reference. I mean, I think Renee's brilliant, so it, it must be. It's always something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about, but don't know that I have any answers to. Not not that we have any <laughs> any answers with this film, <laughs> but I feel like it's something I'm stuck on. I don't know why. In terms of the Louise Brooks reference. You know, my understanding was his want on an aesthetic level for certain silent film era elements, you know, like the the costumes and the production design. And he even went so far as to ask Eastman Kodak to develop a, a special film stock with whites that bled. Which I love. Oh, I mean, I, I love the fact that he requested it and they're like, no, we're not doing this. Because I would, uh, that, that film stock would be amazing right now. Uh, it particularly. Really would, <laughs> the fact that he would think about it on the level that he would want his own unique kind of film stock made, it just is marvelous. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, it's kind of like a predecessor to when Kubrick designed those, uh, you use those NASA lenses for, uh, 2000 or, uh, Barry Lyndon. The ones that he developed to shoot the moon landing and fake it all? We're not supposed to talk about this right now. <laughs> we're all going to be killed in our sleep by NASA. Yeah, we're going to be waterboarded. But no, it's 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 funny how he kind of got around that, or at least tried to sort of uh, break even by ex- overexposing some of the shots that are like very clearly overexposed in this film. I would love to have been able to see a version with that special film stock, but I I love that he kind of tries to bring us back into, I guess, the 10s or the 20s in such specific ways. No, absolutely. I'm glad he's also uh, not alive today to pull a George Lucas and 
ruin this film with he would awful never CGI uh, versions of the silent film embellishments. He I agree would that never. never. The other big, you can't really call it a set piece. Let's say uh, a trope or, or a movement in this movie is the idea of this balustrade and the breaking of this and a murder, a suicide, two big question marks, just the way that it feels like someone dies. And again, you were talking about sounds that don't fit. You would think that there would be a different sound for when this possibly breaks, but it sounds like it almost sounds like the lid of a coffin being slammed down or like the, 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 the tomb that's being sealed when this happens. It is just, it's such a, a another big open-ended question for me. Yeah, and it's weird because in the in the reverse shot of that, when they show it again, it's almost like logically he would not have fallen very far when they, you know, uh, which which almost is kind of another vertigo reference to the degree that movie had the feigned death as well. That whole sort of relationship with the idea of. It's like the connection to Hitchcock and how Hitchcock always had these sort of fantasy women. That, to me, is something that rings a little bit more true than the Orpheus thing we were talking about earlier. Because it just, I mean, not only because he, you know, throws Hitchcock in there, but it just feels like the way some of Hitchcock's films can also seem very cold. It, it, it reminds me a lot of that. Uh, it seems a little more intentional, like you said, because because he included the cardboard cutout of Hitchcock, much like it's this this weird false death seems intentional. If you think about like uh, like the inclusion of Rosemar or Rosemar Home, the, the play, which also has people falling to their death, as I understand it. I've read a lot of debate as far as is that the play that's being produced and oh my god just just reading articles about this movie can be like you said a rabbit hole all of these different things I mean this movie is such a Rorschach test when it comes to what do you see when you look inside of last year at Marion Bod what does that say about you <laughs> Well that's I think what makes it so interesting is Going through and reading all these different critical appraisals, which I had never really done before un until I went to prepare for this episode. And I do think it says so much more about the critics themselves than it does about the film. Although it does get my ultimate film stamp of approval, which is the fact that Pauline Kael fucking hated it. <laughs> Yeah, big thumbs up for me. Yeah, it's like anything she usually anything she's like in a froth about. I'm like, this film is great. What movie did she see? Maybe we should talk about the fact that Delphine is great in the film. It was one of the first films in her incredibly long and amazing career. But for reasons that I don't totally understand, I've heard that Rob Grier didn't like her in the film or thought that she was poorly cast. And part of me thinks that the reason he felt that way is because he was really controlling and maybe wanted somebody who looked more kind of victim-like 
in the role, which she, I don't think ever does in her career, but I just kind of wanted to know what you guys thought about that and about her. I absolutely love her. And she is, she has been in a lot of things that I didn't realize I was looking at her in. Like she is the Mary Magdalene character in Mr. Freedom. I mean, obviously she's wearing that huge red Afro wig type thing (laughs) in that, but I, yeah, I was just like, really? This is the same woman? This is the prostitute from the Milky Way? This is, I mean, she was in, uh, uh, Freak Orlando. I mean, she had a long career of being in some really challenging films and she really impressed me in this. And I was just floored to find out that this was one of her first roles. Yeah, and it was it was funny because uh Renee found her. He's the first time he saw her was in a Heinrich Ibsen play, which is uh, you know, the 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 playwright who who did Rosmerholm. To start your career off with Ibsen, I <laughs> I I feel like indicates that you have some sort of ambition. I I don't even necessarily mean ambition to become like a star, but ambition in terms of really wanting to kind of push the limits of your talent and your experience. And she just has such a crazy, amazing career and life story. I mean, I didn't know this, but apparently she's the niece of Sashore, who is a philosopher. I assume she just kind of had like a random interest in acting, but she has just such a more fascinating life than I, I guess I knew about before preparing for this episode, but her early roles, I, in my mind, there are kind of two kinds of actors, which I guess maybe in Hollywood terms, you would talk about as being stars versus character actors in the sense that when you watch a movie with a star, you're always very consciously watching Humphrey Bogart or Bruce Willis or somebody who plays kind of like a limited range of a particular personality. But with her, I totally agree with what you just said that like you watch movies and you're like, wait, is that Delphine? She just struck me as being somebody who happened to be beautiful, but didn't pay that much attention to it. Like, unless it was convenient for a role, like, and is so kind of willing to be transformed in all these films in the best way, I think, obviously being something like Jean Dielman. She directed a documentary called Be Pretty and Shut Up that I would love to see. Yeah, I've never seen that. Yeah, I've been looking for it, and so far, no luck. And then also, she co-directed a, uh, a version of the Scum Manifesto from Valerie Solanas. Which I also haven't seen, and it just blows my mind. Side note, which we haven't addressed yet, she she wears the fuck out of that those Chanel garments. Ah, uh, like, like, she Jesus does. Christ. Yeah, that definitely is something that we should at least bring up, is the clothes in this. And, like, I'm not somebody who is very fashion oriented. Like I wear the same horror movie t-shirt and jeans every day of my life. But it's one of those things where I think I've become more aware of it the more that I've kind of studied and written about film because they overlap so often, especially in 
the thirties, forties, fifties, but it's just such like an effortless partnership. Like the clothes complement the cinematography and the setting so perfectly. I feel like this is the sort of movie that I would recommend to somebody who was super into fashion, even if I knew they'd be frustrated by the narrative because the clothes are just so beautiful. Yeah, and I think uh, the fashion world has never forgotten it in that regard, no. right? Like Karl Lagerfeld, I think prior to his passing, was the most recent big name to like refer back to it. Yeah, didn't he do a whole show based on it? Yeah. Which is amazing that such a frustrating, difficult movie has had such a long, rich life of people who can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> This is the uh, second movie that I've talked about this year that has had a fashion show inspired by it, because the other one was They Shoot Horses, Don't They? <laughs> Which, what? Yeah, it had a whole <laughs> really? fashion show associated with it, yeah. And this is wow. also, so last week, Jim, we talked about uh, Les Doulos, and Volker Schlorndorf is all over the extras that talk about this because he worked with Melville on that film. And this one, again, it's like Volker Schlorndorf is everywhere on the extras when it comes to last year at Marion Bad. And I was so happy. It's like he's he's become my little personal guide taking me through all of these French films. I'm just like, I'm kind of disappointed that like Corbeau next week, I won't have Volker to, you know, walk me through what the behind the scenes production was like. Yeah, that's a little before his time. I almost feel bad because I love his work as a director, but he is, I don't want to say more valuable, but maybe equally valuable in being so willing to share his experience about being assistant director or just involved in some way with so many of these like really influential productions. It's like you, you were that fly on the wall, buddy. <laughs> Speak up. <laughs> Yeah, his narration for there's a uh, an extra called Souvenirs from Marion Bad, where it's this eight millimeter film that was shot on the set, all this behind the scenes stuff. Just looking at the way that they are behind the scenes and seeing like the apple box that Delphine is standing on, and it almost look, makes her look like a chess piece because she has to be on this box as she talks to her co-stars. <laughs> and it's just, I, I loved it. And I love that you know, the footage looks like shit. So it just has this kind of uh, found footage quality to it. And then his narration, all in German, talking about how, you know, oh, yeah. And then we took day and we went over to Dachau and we're, we didn't take any footage inside of Dachau. But here's us in the village. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And, and just to hear he even says in the documentary um, how the footage finally got to him after all of these p different people had it and went through so many different hands. That extra in itself is just, it's worth the price of admission. So there was not footage from their Dachau visit? No, there wasn't. Just from the town of Dachau itself. Ah, okay. They were nice and didn't take footage inside of a concentration camp or former concentration camp. They didn't leave a little note in the guest book that said Anne Frank would have been a believer. Regarding their, their proximity to Dachau, where they filmed this, I, d I don't know that they're is much allusion to that except for maybe the the pile of uh shoes we see uh ahab you talked a little bit sam about uh Grier being kind of a fetishist and i was like is this some sort of other uh thing going on here but your interpretation jim i i really like that 
it might be one of those things where, you know, there, there's no foundation. So it might be kind of a reach, but you know, it's just sort of an assumption. That makes a lot of sense to me because Rob Gray's fetishism is often related to strangling people and you don't, it's not a sort of unfortunate Quentin Tarantino situation where there are lots of shoe or foot shots, (laughs) but I do think there is this kind of, I I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think with a lot of these art house films coming out in the years after the war, you get, even if they're not specifically talking about the Holocaust in any like obvious way, I think a lot of them kind of reference this idea of mass trauma And so you do have a lot of films that play with this idea of memory and memory as being sort of important to healing from trauma, but memory as being unreliable. And so I I think that whole thing with the shoes makes perfect sense. But I also love to read way too much into everything in my entire life. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, just thinking about Night and Fog as well, like it, it would it would make sense as well in terms yeah. of, like you said, this sort of uh, alternative history and how we use memory to, you know, sometimes overwrite things that actually happened. Yeah, you know, which is something you see obviously with the with the characters here, or allegedly anyway. Yeah, as I was. Reading about this last night, I had this flash about this uh, movie called Where is Memory from 1992, which is about a um, a man, this uh, sleepwalker is what they call him in the film. And he's walking around uh, different places in Germany, specifically Berlin, and he's taking footage. And even though he's in present or 1992 Germany all the film that he's taking is showing what what Germany looked like during the war and especially during the rise of the Nazis and so he will look at a place and then kind of contrapose that with you know this is what it looked like when there was this huge swastika and the the, the eagle and all of these things going on and so yeah it's the, I don't think that we're reaching too much if all three of us are thinking along those same lines but this is the place for people to overthink things. So we're all in a safe space here. By extension, I mean, the, the high heel, the, the broken, you know, high heel, uh, point, points to a trauma as well. You know, we've, we've discussed at length, you know, the, the alleged rape, the probable rape a, a, around this. People often attribute the, the broken heel to that as well. That moment where she has such a violent sort of horrified reaction, it's, very much like somebody unconsciously recalling trauma and having a physical response to it. So maybe we're only reaching a little. To be fair, you know, both of those men made films that were much more explicitly about World War II, like obviously Hiroshima Monomore, which we keep talking about. And Rob Grier went on to make a film called The Man Who Lies, set in Yugoslavia about this guy who returns home from the war and it actually is a really interesting companion piece to both Hiroshima Monomore and Marienbad because he returns home and he claims to be this heroic resistance fighter, but because it's been a decade or two, nobody's really sure if he's telling the truth. And so it becomes this, again, kind of labyrinthine story about 
the, these sort of issues with memory is can we trust memory? Can we trust the things that people say they've remembered or events that they've said have happened or even who they are? And that is maybe a little bit less sort of beautiful and Baroque and was shot with a much smaller budget and sadly lacks Sasha Virni, but it, it does deal with a lot of the same themes. I don't think I've ever seen night and fog all the way through, but seeing a few minutes of that, I was more affected by a few minutes of night and fog than I was by two hours of the 10 hours of Shoah. I mean, it is just so powerful and it is amazing that Renee made this so early in his career. The thing that's a little frustrating about net. So night and fog is a short film and is just sort of meant to say, you know, here is this unresolved trauma, this horrible thing that happened that a lot of people still don't know the full facts about or haven't fully acknowledged. But the thing that I find a little bit grating about Night and Fog is that it tries to sidestep this issue of Judaism and anti-Semitism, which of course Shoah is the opposite. Uh, <laughs> and I, I do think it's it's really important, but it also is one of those interesting films where he manages to be very experimental, but very political at the same time, sort of like a preview to some of the the themes that he would explore once he started making feature films. What I remember most from Shoah is two hours of people explaining the uh, finger across the throat thing and that the narrator seemed or the questioner never seemed to have ever heard of that before. So he has to have everyone explain it and that he has to say the question. We have to get the translator translating the question. We get the answer. We get the translation of the answer back to the questioner and then follow up questions go on and on. And it's just like, guys, you could have cut this down to two and a half hours. Easy. You have to understand Claude Lanzmann, who he actually wrote this really great uh, memoir called The Patagonian Hair that I would recommend people read and maybe instead of watching all 10 hours of Shoah. But Claude Lanzmann comes across as this person who, and he was definitely loosely associated with Rene and a lot of those kind of uh, artistic and intellectual figures in France at the time. He comes across as being somebody who led this really fascinating life where his mission was to kind of uncover things about the Holocaust that people didn't want to talk about. Like there are some great sequences where he goes to Poland and he gets really confrontational with people like what happened when your neighbors were just gone and they're like, Oh, well we moved into their house and now it's our house. It's, it's horrible. But he comes across as being extremely self-important. And so he strikes me as the kind of person who would be horrified if someone said like, well, maybe you should cut this down. (laughs) Definitely the type of filmmaker who's like, every second is a masterpiece. I'm not cutting this. But I think it, it also, in his mind, it's such an important subject that it deserves 10 hours. But I, I get your point. I could go on about how modern polls just seem to have forgotten everything these days, but we won't go there. No, let's not open that can of worms on this episode. (laughs) 
We'll do a nine-hour episode, though. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. J'ai reçu une lettre anonyme, moi aussi. Tu es au mieux avec Germain Lavorteur. Je te conseille de cultiver cette relation. Tu en auras peut-être besoin si ta fille Jeannette continue à passer des heures entières dans le bureau de ton médecin-chef. Malheureusement pour vous, je viens de la pharmacie. Toutes les ampoules prescrites sont parties comme sorties. J'ignore si vous les employez à votre usage personnel ou si vous les revendez, mais il faudrait les retrouver avant demain matin. Ailleurs, j'ai reçu une lettre. Bah, ce qui est plus grave, c'est que j'en ai reçu une, moi aussi. Et pourquoi plus grave Parce que je suis un homme public, monsieur Fayol. Tu crois que je ne te connais pas Tous nos locataires, tous, il te les a fallu. Sauf le boy scout et le vieux frochard. Et encore, je suis pas sûr du boy scout. Heureusement que ce matin, j'ai reçu une lettre qui m'a ouvert l'œil. Quelle lettre Celle-ci. Quoi Vous levez à l'instant et vous avez déjà les doigts tachés d'encre. À l'assassin anonyme, il fallait du sang. Oiseau de sang. Oiseau noir. Corbeau. C'est elle le corbeau. C'est faux. C'est une lettre. C'est faux que j'avais mis la lettre. Moi, mais c'est une Au fond, le corbeau, c'est peut-être vous
That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Clouseau's Lake Corbeau. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Jim. So, Jim, what have you been up to lately? Under quarantine, I am still somehow in late development uh, with my first feature film, which coincidentally also straddles multiple eras and ruminates on love uh, and death and uh, lingering souls from the past. It's kind of Badlands meets Personal Shopper with a touch of Vertigo-like obsession between two female protagonists uh, with a serial killer thrown in there for good measure. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I like your elevator pitch. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, have gotten really good at it trying to, you know, push it forward. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, keeping me surprisingly busy during our uh, pandemic times. If you want to stay apprised of the, the film's progress or see some of my earlier work and find me on social media, uh, you can do so at jimvendiola.com. Just one word, dot com. And Sam, what is new in your world? Busy as usual. I'm working on a book that should be finished this summer. It does involve World War II and things like the way that filmmakers deal with trauma. It deals with a lot of French filmmakers, uh, Rene included. Other things I've been doing, I you know, always do a lot of commentary work. Uh, recently, I've been doing stuff on early German cinema, things like the Arnold Funk film, The Great Leap, which stars Lenny Riefenstahl, uh, Pabst's Paracelsus, which was the film he was sort of forced to make under the Nazis. Uh, both of those are out through Kino. We just did uh, Distant Journey, the Czech Holocaust film together as a commentary with Kat Ellinger, which is from Second Run. Always busy. I disavow all knowledge of that commentary. <laughs> Well, it happened last year. Maybe <laughs> maybe in Philadelphia, maybe in England, maybe in Michigan. Who knows? Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. at nine. We met at eight. I was on time. No, you were late. Ah, yes. I remember it well. We dined with friends. We dined alone. A tenor sang. A baritone. Ah, yes. I remember it well. That dazzling April moon. There was none that night. And the month 
was June. That's right. That's right. It warms my heart to know that you remember still the way you do. Ah, yes. I remember it well. How often I've thought of that Friday night when we had our last rendezvous and somehow I foolishly wondered if you might by some chance be thinking of it too. That carriage ride. You walked me home. You lost a glove. I lost a comb. Ah, yes, I remember it well. That brilliant sky. We had some rain. Those Russian songs. From sunny Spain. Ah, yes, I remember it well. You wore a gown of gold. I was all in blue. Am I getting old? Oh, no. Not you. How strong you were. How young and gay. A prince of love. In every way Oh, yes I remember it well
bracelet is a sign of force. It kept the memory of you alive, lost forever.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.